0: Welcome to Building Better Humans podcast. I'm Lindley Wood, a former teacher, future therapist, and mom to a beautifully blended family. Being human is hard. We all need a little help. While doing research for my episode with Caroline Dooner, author of The Fuck It Diet, I listened to several of her own podcast episodes. That is where I found today's guest, Dr. Devin Price. Devin wrote an incredible book called Laziness Does Not Exist. Now, before you freak out, listen to what Devin has to say. Also, buy the book. It's a game changer. Fatness and laziness are so intrinsically linked, it's important to learn where this began. So let's dive in. There were some internet issues on my part, so please forgive the gaps. But the goodness is so worth it, I promise. Hang in there. Without further ado, Dr. Devin Price. I am so excited today to welcome Dr. Devin Price to the show, the author of Laziness Does Not Exist, which this book was a game changer for me. So I am so excited to welcome you today. Uh, Devin, it's nice to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Awesome. I actually found you when I was doing some research for my episode with Caroline Dooner of the Fuck It Diet. And you were on her podcast and I was like, oh, I want to talk to this person. This information was just so mind-blowing to me. Would you tell us a little bit about what you study, what you do? Your job is really cool. Just tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. Yeah. So I am a professor at Loyola University Chicago's School of Continuing and Professional Studies which is a mouthful. But what that basically means is, yeah, and we might be changing our name and then our Google results will be even worse as a school. But what that basically means is I teach working adults. So people who are usually going back to college after maybe trying out college on the conventional quote unquote timeline and then needing to drop out for whatever reason. So I love working with this population of people. They have really interesting full lives. They're usually really committed to learning because they've really, they really know what it really costs them as adults, you know, and yet so many of them have a ton of shame. They're this like really awesome, really driven population of people who Mm -hmm. are taking care of kids, working full-time jobs, taking night classes. And yet if something happens and they are late on an assignment, they're so apologetic. They work really hard to be like, oh no, you, you need to understand it's because my kid is sick and my car broke down. I'm not lazy please, you know, give me a chance. All this like really apologetic stuff. Right. And it's because they've been burned in the past. They've been told that they're not good enough so many times. Hmm. So teaching this population for over 10 years has been really instructive to me that Uh it's some of the people who are the most hardworking, the most overextended, people who are usually coping with other stuff like ADHD, depression, just not being suited very well for conventional college life, whatever it is, and coping with that that are being told that they're not trying hard enough. And they're the people trying the very hardest in the world. So that's what really inspired me to write this book, Laziness Does Not Exist. And it's about really looking at all of the areas in our lives where we're made to feel like we aren't doing enough or we're made to look at other people and say, they're not trying hard enough to pull themselves up by their bootstrap or whatever it is. And how laziness is just a myth that we use to explain away Massive injustices, and that almost everyone in the world that you look at is doing too much, not too little,
0: and that is, oh, I, I'm in on this role right now. Like every single thing is a construct, right? Gender, thinness. I mean, like literally, everything is a construct. Everything is made up, right? So this is one of those things that has been pushed on us, like you said, by lots of big, powerful corporations to make us feel less than, and I just. I'm so glad that you did this work because I think it's such an important thing for so many of us to give ourselves grace as well as give other people grace in in our lives as we go through this, especially in a time like this. Did I know you make some references to COVID in the book. It it was written pre-COVID though, yeah?
1: I finished my first draft November before COVID hit. And then um, as I was doing revisions with my editor, it was in March. So the timing worked out quote unquote perfectly where it, it just, I'm rereading this book in this moment when everybody is just stuck at home with nothing to do but work and to beat themselves up over how they're not using pandemic time productively. So of course I had to add some stuff about that.
0: Yeah, that you should be like learning a new language. My God, if I get a shower, I feel like I've been successful that day. Like let alone like learn a new language or whatever craziness people think needs to happen. The actual laziness lie. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? You you know, if you're a a person like me that likes to follow along, there it, it's on page fifteen in your book. The tenets that you give.
1: Yeah. So the so the laziness lie is kind of the term I've coined for some of the beliefs about laziness that are really implicit and really deeply ingrained in our culture, and its three main tenets are that your worth is defined by your productivity. Mm-hmm. That you need to ignore all needs and limitations and feelings that you have that kind of get in the way, supposedly of productivity. And then the third tenant is that there's always more that you could be doing. So wow. even if you are working 80 hours a day or 80 hours a week, <laughs> uh, exactly. you still could be volunteering or you're you could be working out more or you could have a better looking home or you could be thinner. So there's just always inadequacies that you have that you can feel lazy about no matter how much you have on your
0: plate. Absolutely. I think a lot about, you know, um, Pinterest, which is hysterical because I love Pinterest, right? I love to do crafts. That's something I enjoy. But every time I look at Pinterest, I realize now as we're talking that I have some guilt that I'm not making my home look like that or that, you know, there's so many pieces to this that I did not see before I read this book. Similar to like I describe diet culture as like the Matrix, right? That movie and like it's the same thing here, right? It's so intertwined and so interwoven. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Perfectionism and productivity worship are all really tied up in each other. If you are always holding yourself to an impossible standard, that makes you someone who works very hard and is very easy to exploit the labor of. And it also makes you a really good consumer. Um, And so people are profiting off of your insecurities and feeling like you're inadequate in both directions. They're keeping you really busy And then you feel really bad that you haven't had a chance to clean up your house. And so then you buy some, like, organizing tool supposedly going to make you not a disgusting, lazy slob when you never were a disgusting, lazy slob in the first place. You were just setting priorities pretty logically based on what you're trying to survive at the moment.
0: Yes. And I'm going to piggyback that by saying that you quote that this workaholic lifestyle, right, is not supported by research, right? In fact, research shows a lot less, right? I mean, you said something about the hours of productivity in a day is a lot shorter than I believed it to be.
1: Yeah. yeah. And the thing about it that is so maddening is like uh, productivity researchers, industrial organizational psychologists have been going into offices and going into manufacturing plants and studying worker productivity for decades. And pretty much what they find consistently is people work about three to four hours of an eight hour work day. -hmm. Those are—that's the amount of time that you're actually productive, and they found it over and over again in a bunch of different kinds of jobs, a bunch of different kinds of settings, and yet they've almost always approached it with a perspective of, okay, how do we actually get people to stop screwing around online or chatting at the water cooler? How can we get people to stop wasting half the day instead of looking at it as descriptive data? This Mm -hmm. is what people are capable of if everybody consistently does it, maybe it's not a problem. The only problem is that we think it's a problem and that we keep trying to beat it out of people. This urge and need that we have to socialize, waste time, daydream, online shop, all that good stuff.
0: All the good stuff, right? Everything I love, right. And I had a quote here from page 10, again, if you're uh, a book nerd like me, where you said, in fact, the feelings we write off as laziness are some of humanity's most important instincts, a core part of how we stay alive and thrive in the long term. So these things we're trying to push out at people, we actually really need, right?
1: Right. And we have moralized saying no. Mm-hmm. And we've moralized every emotion that tells us to say no. So I really see the hatred of laziness as fundamentally a problem of body autonomy and consent. If we really hold that saying yes is morally superior to saying no, how are you going to be able to listen to when you feel uncomfortable or when you feel dread sitting in a pit in your stomach? You can't really touch those parts of yourself and listen to the parts of yourself saying that you need to get out of a situation or that you need to rest. If you see those emotions as suspect and getting in the way of you being a good person. So it's a really fundamental problem and it touches so many of our relationships and so many aspects of our life.
0: My jaw is on the floor. I didn't, you know, again, like so many things that I haven't considered and absolutely that would be a factor. Holy cow. That that's amazing as well. Okay. Okay. So, with that being said, the intersectionality of all of this is a big part of it, right? For, especially for anyone that has more than one sort of ism in their life, right? You know, everything from ableism to fat phobia to racism to transphobia, all of those things intersect here. And since this podcast is mostly about breaking up with diet culture, I think often about this intersectionality piece and how specifically people in larger bodies are viewed through this lens. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So so when I talk about the laziness lie and where it comes from, one of the roots of it is anti-Blackness and slavery. This idea that we were in this country exploiting and controlling the labor of a group of people who were dehumanized. And part of the way that we justified it historically was saying this group of people is lazy. They're not moral. They need the guiding hand of... Enslavers to keep them uh, working and being virtuous. Mm-hmm. And that is really closely tied to the origins of fat phobia as well. Fat phobia and anti-Blackness are very much indelibly linked. Aubrey Gordon, who mm-hmm. blogs under the moniker Your Fat Friend, she's written some great stuff about this. This idea that historically, Black bodies were considered wild and animalistic and savage and more sexualized in a way that was threatening. And this idea that, like, if you carried fat on your body in a particular way it was like perverse and it was the way that generally speaking we associate with black bodies looking though mm-hmm. obviously any kind of body can carry weight in any number of ways but as a right. general trend that was the stereotype so so much of our control and the hatred of people uh, who are oppressed in any way in our culture today is still rooted historically in this fear of we can't let Black people be free because there's something wrong with them that is animalistic. And we need to hate anything in ourselves that we've decided to label animalistic, which can be wanting food, taking up space, wanting to have sex, like, you know, wanting to, you know, take a nap, anything that isn't compliance and conformity and being productive for someone else pretty much can be demonized. And that's really where it all goes
0: back to. Absolutely. Yeah. I find it so interesting when I was chatting with Virgie Tovar, we were talking about the election and things that have gone on in this country and the complicity of white women in particular being awakened at this point, that it's important to point out that this laziness lie is a part of that, right? That we need to pick apart and see how we have dehumanized others in so many ways. And so many, like lazy doesn't seem like it's that much, right? When you call someone lazy, but there's so much behind it. It's amazing.
1: Yeah. Laziness is not just about, even though I start with the example of professors who aren't patient with students who are busy, Mm -hmm. hatred of laziness is like built into things like how we give out disability benefits in this country. We have this fear that if you take care of people who can't work, that people will lie and take advantage of that and say that they can't work even when they can. And wouldn't that be so horrible as taking care of someone who, let's say, is too depressed to work, but physically maybe could or whatever it is. And so then we make it really hard to get disability benefits. You have to subject Mm -hmm. yourself to all these medical tests every single year to prove that you're really suffering enough, you're really disabled enough. And enforcing that actually costs us so much money, it wouldn't even logically be worth it. But, you know, my real problem with it is how inhumane it is. And that also is connected to how we deny people welfare and how those things have been cut since the 80s. This idea that we can't let people take advantage of the system and of course, that was always really tied up with anti-Black stereotypes as well. So hatred of laziness is really political. It's not just being impatient with a co-worker who's disappointing you or whatever it is. It's really fundamentally, do we trust other people? Do we think that society should take care of all people no matter what? And that's mm-hmm. about as political as you can get.
0: Right. That is literally the question, right? And for me, I, this is one of the things I struggle with the most our world right now is to me, that's such an obvious question, right? Like we just take care of people. That is the right thing to do. And for some people that is not the right answer because there's all these like things that get in the way, but looking at instances where like laziness, it has been politicized in such a heavy way. Hopefully we can bring awareness to more people that we got to think about this and the stigmatization and, and just how it harms people in their everyday lives. While, like you said, while you think it's something off the cuff, you call your coworker. It's a, political pariah almost.
1: And I do have compassion for the people who resent the idea that they have to care about this stuff because so often it comes from a place of they're really overworked. They haven't been taken care of by society. They feel like, oh, it's a really unfair dog eat dog world and I had to suffer through it. So why can't other people work hard? So even the people who hate quote unquote lazy people and really believe those stereotypes, it comes from a place of them being exploited them not being taken care of, like all the same problems. And they just need more compassion and the world to take better care of them too. You know?
0: Let's talk about cyber loafing. Saying that this is something that can be positive. You want to talk a little bit about that for me?
1: Yeah, yeah. This is a really surprising one. So cyber loafing is the act of wasting time screwing around, usually at work by getting online. So you know, social media, online shopping, all that kind of stuff. hmm And um, people always look at it, productivity researchers look at it, as a huge threat and a waste of time or time theft. And I have this graduate student, Marvin Quente, who he was doing research on cyberloafing, and he actually just finished up his dissertation on it, which is awesome. And he's a mortician, and he studied how morticians in particular use cyberloafing. And he was studying them, how they cyberloaf during the pandemic, which as a mortician, it's a just nightmare time should be working. Very traumatic time. Lots of funerals to plan. Right. Under very strange circumstances. Absolutely. And what he found was that cyber loafing was something that these morticians used to emotionally regulate, to give themselves a break psychologically, oh. to help them switch between different tasks. So I'm done answering emails. Now I'm going to go start making, you know, programs for funerals. I'm going to pop on Facebook for a second to kind of clear my head or whatever it is. And as he was... Looking into the literature, he also found a lot of previously published research showing the exact same thing: that employees use cyber loafing to switch gears mentally, to give themselves a little break, and it doesn't actually present a detriment to productivity all of the time. It's something that people need, just like we need to like kind of chat with our coworkers or just kind of wander around the room and stretch their legs. It's just another mental way of doing that.
0: Yes. I'm hopeful that someone's, I'm, I mean, I'm sure dissertations are being created about the pandemic as we're going, but I would imagine that this has gone up a little bit. Being in the same space all the time, you know what I mean? That would be my own hypothesis. And, you know, it's not that it's
1: like an endlessly positive thing, right? To like, Sam <laughs> right, right. I also talk about doom scrolling and how we can get, <laughs> we're manipulated by social media to keep consuming information and to think that that's us being responsible citizens, when sometimes it's us just being marketed to and taken advantage of. But we need stimulation. Human attention, I talk about in the book, is more like a lighthouse scanning the room than it is a single laser pointed at a single object. We we need social contact. We need new ideas and, and to see beautiful things. So, you know, social media isn't necessarily always the best way for us to get the break that we need, the simulation that we need. But sometimes it is. Sometimes it's completely just a neutral thing, the same as taking a walk or, you know, just taking a break to like water your plants and wash the dishes and just not stare at a screen all day. So I think if people can look towards cyber loafing as not an evil thing that they should beat themselves up for, Mm -hmm. but just a sign that they need a break that they can notice Mm -hmm. neutrally and say, okay, I see that I'm going on Facebook. Is it because I'm lonely? Can I give a friend a call instead or, oh, I'm on Instagram because I want to look at some, you know, beautiful photos of nature and like dogs rolling around like (laughs) that's what I need right now. And I don't have to feel like that's a waste of time, like being intentional about it and noticing it and accepting it as a signal of what you need instead of trying to fight it.
0: Mm, that's a really good point. I like that a lot. Thank you for clarifying that. Cause I think that that is, yes, all the things that we do, right. Are just cues to ourselves that we need something. And so being able to pay attention to that, obviously in the world of, you know, breaking up with diet culture, that's a simple thing of realizing when you're hungry, right. Which is something that has been mm-hmm. manipulated for so long. So I think of it that way, but once you are hungry, like you do something about it, you know, and that, that will be okay. I like that idea. Um, I want to kind of wrap up with like what in the world to do with this information. You've given us some great tips. So can we talk about your your happiness savoring strategies? Yeah. I talk about the research on savoring, which
1: is it's kind of similar to mindfulness, but it's really mindfully and fully and presently appreciating the things that you like in life Mm. that are pleasurable. And so much of what we do in life because we're obsessed with productivity and perfectionism is we take steps that research shows dampen happiness. So Mm -hmm. the things that dampen happiness are things like fault finding. So looking at everything that's imperfect about a situation. So I Mm -hmm. might be taking a nice bubble bath and I'm super distracted by some of the mildew in the corner instead of focusing on the candle that I've lit smells really good and reading the book that I brought or something like that. Another way that we dampen happiness is by stifling our signs of happiness. So, oh, I don't want to be cringy and weird. So I'm not going to be too enthusiastic about something that I love because I don't want people to think I'm a weirdo or childish or whatever. Right. And another one is negative mental time travel, which is just not living in the moment, worrying about what's going to happen next or... Beating yourself up about something silly that you said in the past, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So, the strategies for savoring are basically the flip side of that, focusing on the pleasure that you're getting out of an experience, accepting Mm -hmm. that nothing is going to be perfect, not distracting yourself from the moment by worrying about the future, engaging in positive mental time travel, which is things like reflecting on really positive memories of a good time that you spent with someone or planning something in the future that you can really luxuriate and think about like, oh, I can't wait to go on this vacation or to, to buy this new video game and, and really imagining yourself enjoying it and also just not stifling your happiness when you feel it. So, you know, jumping for joy, letting yourself be kind of loud and excitable and cackling at a joke that your friend made and not seeing those things as unprofessional, immature, something that you need to hide so that you can be a good little conformist worker be. And those things can really help you get a little bit more of the joy out of things that are supposed to be giving, giving us joy that we shouldn't feel bad about.
0: Oh, that's so good. Amazing. It's And I think those are all beautiful strategies that we can implement even now when we're away in our homes. And and that's those are great. Thank you, Devin. Those are amazing. All right. I'm going to ask you two more questions. These are my favorites. I ask them to everyone. My first one is how do you add more? That's my theory of ditching diet culture, right? Like we want to add more good into our one true beautiful life. So what do you do to add more to your life? Oh God, is it bad that my instinct is to like
1: by saying no to more things?
0: No, it's absolutely not. (laughs) That's good, that's perfect. (laughs) I
1: mean, like so much of, for me, like beating the laziness lie and like starting to build a life that actually lines up with your values is saying no to more things. There's just so many ways that my life get encro- gets encroached on. And I think this is true for everyone, but especially now. Do you have time for this meeting? Do you have time to take on this responsibility? Can you be there for this person? And just learning to like listen to if I feel dread <laughs> the second someone asks me to do something or feel annoyance and resentment, that right. probably means not even that they're being unreasonable, but that I haven't been listening to myself or mm-hmm. that I'm doing too much. Right. So learning to say no, I don't feel like this, I'm not enjoying this, I don't have time for this and walking away from it really gives me a lot more room to actually have joy and abundance and authenticity in my life. And for me like what that often looks like is doing something that is not online that nobody's ever going to see. Nobody's mm-hmm. ever going to find impressive, you know, like right. I got into the like adult coloring book trend way too late. Like I'm into yes. them now, even though they were like a 2015 trend, but it's like, that's not art that anybody's going to find impressing, impressive in any way. It's not mm-hmm. a performance, it's not an achievement, but I can just like sit and listen to a podcast and do it. And it's right. very satisfying. Or I talk in the book about lifting weights. I'm very weak. I will always be very weak. So it's just about like, oh, I'm doing something that I'm slowly getting better at and learning about new things my body can do. But it's not an accomplishment. It's just because it feels good.
0: It just feels good. That's so amazing. I love that. And then my last thing is your best bit. And that's just your best piece of advice. It can be about anything, you know, drink more water, have more sex, whatever you think, say no more. I mean, you've said that.
1: Yeah, look at your life and your feelings descriptively rather than trying to impose a bunch of shoulds on it. So how you're spending your time is a reflection of what you're capable of and what you need. And so if you are never getting anything done at 3 p.m., this this is true of me, 3 p.m., I'm never getting anything done during the day for whatever reason, I've hit my limit. It's just not a good time of day for me, whatever the reason is. Right. Instead of beating myself up for that or trying to like get you know, more caffeine into my body to force it, I can just accept it and say, okay, that's the time of day where I'm going to have conversations like these because I know I can't write or do much work, work during this time or I'm right. going to go for a walk or go exercise or whatever, go shopping, whatever it is. If you spend a lot of time kind of staring off at, into space in the middle of the day, maybe that's because <laughs> you really need a rest. and Maybe you can schedule that time to meditate or to look out your window, whatever it is, do something that gives you whatever it is that you need. And this goes back to diet culture. We ignore our body's signals so hard. Mm -hmm. So just learning to see them as signals and our friends that are trying to protect us is so key. And it can really, it's a lifelong process for me, at least. But the more we do it, like the more we can change our lives to be in line with what we actually need and want.
0: That's perfect. Thank you so much, Dr. Devin Price. Go and buy the book. It's amazing. Laziness does not exist. I thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. Quarantine has had an impact on all of us. Hopefully listening to Dr. Devin eased your mind a little bit about quote unquote laziness. As always, you are perfect exactly as you are. If you want to chat about this or anything else anti-diet, there's a link to set up your free coaching call with me in the show notes. I'm standing with you. Until next time, Black Lives Matter, and fat doesn't own us anymore.